Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Are we ready to get started? Yep. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. It's been about 24 hours since we last podcasted. Big 24 hours, though. But the political world is on its head. Um, I voted. Many others voted. Um, it was wild. A, a lot happened. So we want to try to sort of run through this in a, in a slightly disciplined way, what the consequences are, since I, I expect we'll be talking loosely for, for weeks about these midterms. Uh, but first off, so Ezra, you wrote a piece last night provocatively saying Republicans are paying a hefty Trump tax. What does that mean? So, so let's go through this. So we should say the, the results as they stand now, um, and we don't have everything finalized, but Democrats are going to take back the House with around a 30-seat pickup. Uh, Republicans are going to gain a couple seats in the Senate. And so you can look at this as a, as a mixed result, but I don't think one should. So what you have here is Democrats winning what looks at this point to be somewhere between a 7 to 8 percentage point popular vote victory in the House vote. That is one of the biggest wave victories we've ever seen. Now, it's not going to translate into one of the biggest House pickup groups that we've ever seen because of gerrymandering, because of geography. But this is bigger than what uh, Republicans had in the vote in 2010 when there was a huge recession. It is a lot bigger than what we saw in 2014. And it's coming amidst unemployment at 3.7 percent, an economy that's growing. Consumer confidence is really high. So we're in this period right now where all of the external conditions suggest that Donald Trump should be a quite popular president and Republicans should be enjoying a real boost from the economy. And yet they're performing like an unpopular majority that is dealing with a recession. Or if you go back to other big points like this, like like 08 or 2006, a very unpopular war. And, And that speaks to a way in which Donald Trump's political strategy, I think, is really failing in a way that the media has trouble admitting. His political rise was so unexpected that there is difficulty just saying that he's actually at the same time that he's sort of a political genius. He's quite bad at politics. Donald Trump should not have been unable to crack 50 percent in approval with an economy like this. Like that just shouldn't have happened. And Republicans shouldn't have results like this with an economy like this. That also just shouldn't have happened. The Trump tax refers to something we looked at going back to 2016, where we used political science models to say, well, what should we expect the outcome of the election to be? And and the models, um, when you average them out, said, well, the Republican is probably going to win 50.9 percent of the two-party vote share in 2016. And Donald Trump way underperformed that. And so that we always called it the Trump tax. Like that was a tax Republicans were paying for for nominating Donald Trump. And I think you're seeing here this Trump tax get a lot 
bigger. I think the difference between what we could have expected Republicans to do under these conditions with a president who was running a more popular political strategy and what they did is very directly attributable to Donald Trump's political decisions and the way he's kept his opposition mobilized, as opposed to being able to unify people around pretty strong economic performance. Yeah, I mean, although one thing that I wonder is how much were we looking at a Trump tax versus how much were we looking at a I don't know what you would call it, like a like a Paul Ryan tax. Like it felt to me like Republicans' lowest moments in the polls came not because Donald Trump was tweeting about a caravan, but like when they were trying to enact very, very, very unpopular bills. And I think it matters because like going forward, a consequence of Democrats having a House majority is that they're not going to be moving major legislation anymore. It's hard to imagine politics becoming more dominated by people talking about things Donald Trump says. But like that's going to loom like even larger in the political landscape over the next 18 months with like even less attention spent on like actual policymaking in the government. And I wonder if that will, to an extent, redress some of Republicans' political problems. Yeah. I guess I wonder how I think about the Trump tax as, you know, is it particularly something about having Trump as president? It's also about decisions candidates themselves kind of made, you know, around how they wanted to run on the economy or run on the caravan, that it it is not just the president, you know, having that kind of Focus, but also seeing, you know, a number of races. I think some of those actually being successful. Like we're seeing like someone like Steve King getting reelected, which, um, you know, he, he is someone who is running on an agenda that, um, is very strongly in the Trumpian vein. I think it's interesting to me that a number of Republicans decided to follow the president's lead on this. And I don't know if there will be a rethinking of that, you know, come 2020, but that it kind of extended out into the party, um, you know, on a lot of fronts. But, but this, this to me is, is an interesting space in all this where the media, and we're doing this right now, always wants to pull like a verdict, like some kind of popular message out of an election result. And midterms are really particularly bad for this because, as you say, Sarah, you have uh, 435 different House races and you have, you know, 30-some Senate races and governor's races and this gerrymandering and geography and which states are up and which states aren't up and like the particular dynamics of King's District. And this is really why I focus... I think if you're looking for a message, you need to be looking at the House popular vote. Um, that is the closest we are going to come to something like a national poll. Now, you can also just look at polls, which probably tell you this with um, a little bit more accuracy about what the public really believes. But in, in terms of the the House popular vote, you're getting elections held across the entire country, um, although obviously not all of them were competitive, not all of them were even contested. And you're getting uh, like a measure you can actually look at to see swings versus other elections in other years. And I just I really think think that it being so big, you know, seven to eight percentage points in a time of prosperity, in a time when there's not a huge war sending home hundreds or thousands of Americans in body bags, it's unusual. And I, and I think we need to figure out why it's so unusual and, and, and take that seriously. Now, I do take the point that, you know, maybe it's Paul Ryan's agenda, right? Certainly, I think it's the mix of Paul Ryan's agenda and Donald Trump's approach to politics. You know, Paul Ryan's agenda is incredibly unpopular and Donald Trump's approach to politics is incredibly mobilizing for his political opposition. And I have a lot of trouble pulling those things apart. Now, 
whether or not at this point you want to call it Ryan's agenda, like Donald Trump sort of is backing it too. there. I think there is always this question about how much credit and blame we give presidents for backing their party's congressional agendas and, and for the economy that happens under their watch and all the rest of it. So I'm very sympathetic to that point, Matt. But I also think that it is time, uh, nevertheless, to say like, like Donald Trump is not like a political genius here. He is not running ahead of what you would expect somebody in his position to be doing. He's running well behind it. And I think the fact that his rise was so unexpected and the media felt so taken by surprise by his win in 2016 kind of insulates him from the normal judgments a president governing and producing these results under these conditions would get. Okay, so now I, I want to pirouette to a, to a second takeaway here, right, which is an area where Trump, I think, did outperform normal expectations, and that was in the Senate. It is extremely rare for an incumbent senator from the non-White House party to lose in a re-election bid. It happened to Max Cleland in 2002. Uh, has not happened since then, despite a lot of political turmoil. Um, it didn't happen at all throughout the 80s or 90s. But it appears that at least three and possibly as many as five uh, incumbent Democratic senators will have gone down. And this is a thing that Donald Trump really poured himself into, right? It's a very sort of a, a Trump-like thing to cast aside these decades of accumulated conventional wisdom that that's not a realistic goal to hit. He didn't really try to save incumbent House Republicans, which is the normal thing a White House would try to do. Instead, he really went after these incumbent Senate Democrats. He did tons of rallies in their states. He really ratcheted up the heat on them. He treated his nomination of a very unpopular Supreme Court justice as a political win for himself because it put red state Democrats in an awkward position. And it worked, you know, and, and you can say like, look, this is a skewed playing field, you know, which it obviously was that the map was terrible for Democrats. But in its consequences, Trump is going from a world in which he had 51 Senate seats and two of them were held by Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, and two of them were held by Jeff Flake and Bob Corker. So he always had to kind of watch his back about everything to a world in which he's going to have a real governing majority, not for legislation, but for nominations. Right now, if Donald Trump wants to fire Jeff Sessions and make Chris Kobach attorney general, like nobody's going to stop him from – whatever he wants to do in terms of his control of the executive branch. And it seems to me that from Trump's point of view, that that is a big win, right? I mean, like, it's the basis of his kind of social media bragging. Like, this was the goal he set for himself. He hit his goal, and it's going to give him more degrees of freedom to control the executive branch, which is very important to him. So one thing, like, Someone was saying earlier, but everything kind of blends together at this point after last night. <laughs> but that, you know, it seems like the legislative agenda will mostly be stalled for the next two years with divided government. There's very little chance of seeing like major legislation moving forward. On the other hand, like I would expect a very, very active Senate in the nomination space exactly because of the things that – Matt is outlining. And that, you know, matters a huge, huge amount, you know, for a lot of the structural issues in American politics, from gerrymandering to campaign finance to, you know, how um, how different, you know, legislative accomplishments like the Affordable Care Act are going to be treated in the next few years. And, you know, so we're looking at nominations. There is certainly a possibility of having 
a Supreme Court nomination if, you know, God forbid something happens to one of the justices um, and even lower down looking at um, appeals level or even district level court. Those court appointments matter a lot. And they've definitely, you know, President Trump has done a very good job of, you know, repopulating the judiciary with more right-leaning judges. I think, you know, <laughs> President Trump, like rightly so, is looking at this as a big victory because there is so much you can do through the nomination process. And that gets a lot easier when you have the wiggle room of a few more senators on your side. It, it isn't going to be down to this, like, one vote every time, like we saw with the Kavanaugh hearings. There'll be, you know, more space to lose those folks and still move these nominations forward. And there's a real chance. I mean, a couple races are still outstanding in Montana and Arizona, but there's a real chance that Democrats are going to dig themselves into a Senate hole that they can't realistically climb out of in 2020. 20, and there's just no foreseeable future reality in which Democrats have a governing majority to do anything. So, you know, that's a big deal. That's a huge part of all this. But let, let me say a couple things on this. One is that I, I think we're looking at a broader trend here than Donald Trump. I mean, when you when you talk about this sort of opposition party senator running in a midterm uh, election, I think what we're talking about here is the ways in which polarization is coupling Senate candidates, House candidates to presidential candidates and to state level dynamics behind Donald Trump. Something we just know is happening is states are becoming much more unified in their in their party control. We know that there's becoming a much more tight correlation between how people vote for their member of the Senate, how they vote for the member of the House and how they vote for president. And so. You know, one of the things Donald Trump really did try to do in this election is he tried to run a polarization strategy. He tried to run a strategy that was activating his people as much as possible at the cost of activating Democrats as much as possible. In the Senate, because the map really favored his base, right, the map was very tilted towards states that, that, that he did better in. And just in general, the Senate map is tilted towards Republicans. Uh, the average state is six points more Republican than the, the country as a whole. That sort of worked. Um, you know, I, I don't think you need to reach super far to like understand how Republicans won a Senate seat in North Dakota or Indiana. But it, it, it's nevertheless a case that, that those are important wins for them. But like the cost of that, the cost of that kind of high polarization strategy was because the country as a whole is like not Republican and the country as a whole is not happy with Donald Trump, that it activated Democrats so aggressively they were even able to overcome their gerrymandering and geography disadvantage to, to win the House outright. And I mean, you all remember a couple of years ago writing about how like there's no chance Democrats were going to take back the House until well until the 2020s, given what the map looked like for them. So I think like you need to see that as almost a, a more than equal and an opposite achievement. You know, how much credit I, I recognize that Donald Trump has taken a victory lap on this. I just wonder if this is a case of the old wisdom just having been wrong now for some time. And, you know, we're just we're just seeing it in this election because the map happened to line up with very, very, very polarized election outcomes and very, very polarized and nationalized electoral strategies. OK, on to point three. Take away Let's three. talk about how this was a, a kind of rough night for the left, because I thought this was a, an interesting sub theme of the of the election results. Yeah, I mean, I always think it's like important to define terms, right, because I am old enough to remember when the divide in the party was between like blue dog centrist Democrats and like normal liberal Democrats. And I feel like this was a good night for like normal liberal Democrats who won in lots of seats while having totally normal Democratic Party views. But I think like the new insurgent left did quite 
poorly, right? There were a, a number of races. Um, there was the, the one, uh, Kara Eastman in Nebraska. There was a Pennsylvania one House race. California 45 uh, were sort of insurgent left Democrats had won contested primaries in not like gimme seats but meaningfully contested races and they came up short that Andrew Gillum who looked like he was going to be a big progressive superstar who had a Bernie Sanders endorsement in his primary. He came up short. I think uh, some aggressive left-wing ballot initiatives on climate change in Washington and on rent control in California came up short. Moderate Republican governors in the Northeast got reelected easily and there was a strong political backlash to Donald Trump and in favor of Democrats, but like not a country that was secretly yearning for socialism. Yeah, um, I think that is a fair takeaway. You know, especially when you look at these southern races that were getting a lot of attentions, you know, in Georgia and Texas and Florida, where you're not seeing that, that kind of success that some people were hoping for. You know, on the one hand, it does feel like quite a reach to be electing a Democratic senator from from Texas. Um, you know, on the other, this is where a lot of people were really energized and you saw a lot of money kind of flowing into these these races um, because of people being excited about flipping someplace like Texas blue. And I'm curious how this kind of shapes thinking for 2020, kind of where – you know, people are directing those resources. As we're saying, you know, we're also seeing at the same time this kind of route of moderate Democrats in um, in the Senate from, you know, folks like Claire McCaskill. And you kind of wonder if, you know, the party had been re- – if there was more excitement about sending the money that was going out to Beto, you know, over to Missouri and McCaskill, like if you would have seen something different happening there or not. I don't quite know, but it um, – I think it sets up kind of like an interesting – dynamic and for 2020 and how people are thinking about what space they want to live in on the left. One of the things that I, I think is notable here is, well, first, I think you need to adjust a little bit for which election you're looking at. You know, as you say, like a Democrat winning a Texas Senate seat was a real reach. And I think Beto coming as close as he did is a real is a real achievement. But if you look at where Democrats were in close races or where they um, maybe upset an incumbent a little bit unexpectedly, those candidates were not the candidates that the left was excited about or looking at as their bellwether candidates. I mean, an, an example of this is Katie Porter in uh, California in Orange County, actually in my in the district I grew up in. I've spent some time with her. She's more like Elizabeth Warren than any politician I've ever met in my life. She's a direct protege of Elizabeth Warren's. She was Elizabeth Warren's student. She talks like Warren. She like has that same vibe, that populist energy. And she's a really, really uh, energetic and, and talented candidate. But that was a pretty winnable race against Mimi Walters. It's the kind of race Democrats were winning last night. And, and Katie Porter didn't win it. And you saw that across a pretty wide range. And I think something it reflects here is that a lot of Democrats have looked at and, and a lot of people on the left have looked at the right over the past couple of years and said, we should do that. Like we should do what they're doing, which is like run more intense, like base mobilizing candidates who come out and excite people with a more uh, hardline agenda. And like that in a polarized era is a path to success. And I think you're seeing a little bit that that's not true really on either side. Republicans could have much, much, much bigger majorities than they do if they were not spending down some of the geographic and gerrymandering advantage they have, both in in the House with gerrymandering and with geography in the Senate. 
on running more unpopular candidates on a more unpopular agenda. If Republicans were had become like a more moderate party, they would just be faring a lot better probably across a bunch of political dimensions. Now, they would not be getting some of the things they want to get done done. So, right, there's a trade-off there. On the other side, the thing for Democrats is it it's not symmetric. They are not facing the same issue Republicans are in the same field Republicans are. Democrats face a huge disadvantage geographically in the House. They face a huge disadvantage geographically in the Senate. And they face some disadvantage because of the Electoral College at at the presidential level. And so for them to be as competitive as they have in recent years has relied on them adjusting a little bit more towards districts and states that disfavor them, while Republicans have been like spending down a little bit of the cushion they have in states that favor them on ideology. And I, I just think you, you saw a little bit of that coming out last night. But I, I do want to say, you know, the other thing is that the different races look different and the different ideas, I think, of what a left candidacy should mean also kind of vary from place to place. Yeah, I think that's right. Like Sherrod Brown did quite well in Ohio where he continued to rise above a sort of rightening tide in the state, right? And I think it's clear like he did that by leaning into a kind of like a a class conflict frame, right? And that is a a sort of a, a left talking point, right, is that like Democrats would do better in these working class areas if they tried to make political conflict be about class conflict. And Brown did that and that worked for him. At the same time, like part of what makes Sherrod Brown successful though is that he really, really, really disassociates himself from certain kinds of signifiers of like left-winginess. Right? So like you will never find Sherrod Brown calling himself a quote-unquote socialist, right? Or like going off the handle on like denouncing American imperialism or, or whatever, even though he has a very liberal voting record, right? Like he's a like a super grounded, like really like Ohio-y person, right? And Democrats like they did well in Wisconsin. They did well in Michigan by running sort of like – they're like bland Midwesterners in Plan Midwestern states, and that that worked well for them, and and they're quite progressive on a lot of issues. You know, like if you're just kind of like rattling it down, like what am I looking for? That that's what they are, but they don't necessarily have the atmospherics of like a left wing activist from Brooklyn because like it isn't Brooklyn. You know, it's like a little bit of a banal point, but I I do think it's important, right? I mean, particularly when. When the landscape gets nationalized and you have all kinds of people – I know all kinds of people who live in New York or D.C. and like sort of got passionate about certain kinds of races and they get passionate about the candidates who speak to them personally. But obviously the candidates who do best are the ones who speak to the districts that they are actually running in, you know, which is a a different kind of thing and and you need to be – I mean I think when Democrats look ahead to 2020, this is going to be – a dilemma they face, less about really policy and more about like the soul. Like do you want a candidate who really truly speaks to the demographic that is most outraged by Donald Trump or do you want a candidate who speaks to the demographic that is most mixed in their feelings? Um, And if you want to win, it's probably number two. So let's move on to Obamacare and the role like that played in, in in last night's election because it was pretty big, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think like the takeaway for me is that 
Obamacare is standing and the House majority is not. And I think it is really telling and kind of stunning that in order for some folks to win, like I look at someone like Josh Hawley in Missouri, they essentially had to lie about their position on the Affordable Care Act, that they had to say they supported parts of the Affordable Care Act, that from everything we know from the record, they don't actually support. So, you know, when I look at Obamacare in the elections, I think in the short term, it essentially stops repeal efforts and it's in their tracks that with Democrats now controlling the House, we're just not going to see that getting much traction. So that kind of sets that aside till 2020, unless I would say we have this court ruling that I'm pretty much expecting to come out sometime this week, unless we end up in some kind of situation that's unlikely but possible that the courts essentially force, um, by repealing certain parts of Obamacare, force Congress to um, take some kind of action. But, you know, looking at the role it played in the elections, it really is kind of stunning to me that Obamacare lost Democrats the House in 2010 and seems to have won it back for them in 2018, that in eight short years, the politics of this issue have just totally flipped. In a way, it you know, it kind of validates what a lot of people were telling me when Obamacare passed, this idea I that— passed the bill to find out what was in it. <laughs> famous Nancy Pelosi quote, or I think like Chuck Schumer, there's a quote from him about how it's going to—you know, people are going to like it once they see what's in it. And, you know, that was— half right, I think. Um, You know, the benefits rolled out in 2014. It didn't get any more popular. The thing that had to happen, like the thing that turned this into a winning issue for Democrats is that the benefits had to roll out and then Republicans had to threaten those benefits. And then all of a sudden, it was an issue that people cared about. It was an issue Democrats wanted to run on. So, you know, we saw in a lot of exit polls that healthcare was the most important issue people were were voting on. And it, it really, you know, does put Republicans in kind of a box where you see someone like Josh Hawley running on a platform of protecting pre-existing conditions while he's also suing, you know, the federal government to end those protections. It's a weird world we're living in, but the flip around the politics of Obamacare really feels like a huge 180 over the past eight years. I think this speaks to a lot of the interesting dynamics right now. One of the things that really struck me about the election is that for all the talk about Democrats and identity politics, Democrats ran a very normal Democratic strategy uh, in in most House and Senate races where Republicans ran a very heavy identity politics, somewhat abnormal strategy. So it's like the the Republican closing argument was there is a caravan of about a thousand people moving slowly across Central America. It will be here at some point in the future. A bunch of people will ask if they can come in for asylum. And if not, like, I don't know, like they'll leave or something. And that was like the Republican thing. And the Democratic thing, which could have been their thing against Marco Rubio, could have been their thing really at any point, was that Republicans were going to take Obamacare's pre-existing conditions protections away. And Democrats really ran an election sort of like out of a normal political universe. And certainly in the House, it appears to have largely worked. And that's interesting. And It also, I think, speaks to some of the fears Republicans have long had. If you go like way back to 1994 and the Clinton health care bill, there's this very famous memo from Bill Kristol, who is now becoming sort of a never Trump liberal. But back then was an aide, had been an aide to Newt Gingrich um, and, and was now sort of a Republican strategist. And he wrote this 
piece about the health care bill to Republicans. It was, a, it was a memo about what they should do. And he said, you can't pass it and you can't compromise with it because if it happens, it will never get taken away. There will never be a thing you can do about it. And Obamacare is sort of showing why Republicans often treat these big social safety net uh, programs as sort of apocalyptic, because once they're there, they can mess with them around the edges. I mean, obviously, Republicans have done a lot to sabotage Obamacare. They took out the individual mandate, but they really are not able to uproot them. And from here on out, what's going to happen is Obamacare is going to be built bigger and it's going to be built better or it's going to be turned into some kind of Medicare for all. It's not going to go away. And given the intensity of Republican feeling against Obamacare, like that is a huge ideological defeat for them that not only is it an ideological defeat, but it is a political defeat in very much the way Crystal predicted. They can't get rid of it and it keeps paying Democratic dividends whenever Republicans try. Yeah, I mean, look, it'll be interesting as we get to do sort of subsequent podcasts to think about like where does the American policy landscape go from here? Because so much of Trump era Republicanism seems built on not actually pairing back, like they don't have a feasible path to pair back the welfare state, but they have a set of positions on taxes that commit them to that. And a a sort of prolonged period of low interest rates has made that viable. And then like Donald Trump has this like three-ring political circus that's about everything all the time and definitely not about dull accounting logic. But like that's where you go with this, right? It's like Republicans are – they're not going to scrap this program. They're not going to privatize Medicare like Paul Ryan wanted to. They're not going to privatize Social Security like George W. Bush wanted to. And so what are they going to do? But also I don't even think like in the healthcare space, I don't even think they're going to be like thinking about like what is the Republican vision on healthcare because like they did that almost because their hand was forced with the last election where they had to come up with something to try and pass and they couldn't pass it. I see so much, you know, on the left, like energy to figure out like, okay, like what is our vision on healthcare? Yeah. On the right, like there's no reason, you know, when you look at the fact that, you know, n- nothing is going to move, you know, a lot of the energy, I think also, you know, was coming from the House and like on um, Obamacare repeal plans on Republican healthcare plans really was in the House, not in the Senate. It's kind of like maybe Bill Cassidy, you know, keeps working on this because he's kind of Ugh. seems to be making a name for himself as like the Republican senator who works on health care. But it seems like it kind of slows down. What do you mean? Donald Trump has said that Republicans <laughs> are going to co- protect Medicare from Democrats yeah, and the destroying with Medicare for all. Medicare at the end. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, here, we need to take our ad break. <laughs> all right. Okay, and come back to this. Okay. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Speaking of, of Obamacare, yeah. it sort of did get expanded last it night. It did. And this, like, I think when you think, like, what tangibly changed for Americans overnight, I think it's the fact that we're looking at maybe a half million or so low-income Americans gaining health insurance as a result of um, – the elections. And this kind of happens in two ways. First, um, we made our predictions, and now this is the rare time when predicting is good, because it turns out my prediction was right. Yeah, that, unlike my yes. predictions, Sarah's predictions were correct. Um, that all three states that had ballot initiatives to expand seem to have passed. The Utah one isn't quite certified yet, but it seems like it's going to pass. Um, so that's Utah, Idaho, Nebraska, all expanding Medicaid by ballot initiative. That's about where we'll result in a little over 300,000 people gaining coverage. Um, we also saw two really important governor's races. Um, Kansas and Maine both went for the Democrats. Those are places where the governor has been the roadblock to expanding Medicaid. In Kansas, the legislature, which is actually controlled by Republicans, has voted multiple times to expand Medicaid. Sam Brownback kept sending it back. They weren't able to overcome his veto. In um, Maine, Governor Paula Page has been ordered by a court to implement the state's Medicaid expansion, but has said he would prefer to go to jail instead of doing that. So if He you now look, says he's moving to Florida Well, instead. yeah, I mean, better than jail, I guess. Um, <laughs> if you look at Kansas and Maine, that's another, you know, just slightly under 200,000 people who will likely gain coverage if they move forward on Medicaid expansion, which, you know, unlike these states that have done ballots, they still need the legislature and governor to actually work that out. So um, I assume Wisconsin is now not going to do yeah. Scott Walker. So the last thing, then you have Wisconsin, which was just getting approval from the federal government to create a work requirement for Medicaid. I have to guess their new Democratic governor is not going to move forward on those efforts. So there's a decent chance that five states could be joining Medicaid expansion, you know, as a result of this midterm that's a pretty big shift, and it really shows the um, Medicaid expansion making some inroads in conservative areas, and it shows a new strategy for expanding Medicaid, you know, in places that where the legislature governor is opposed, that these ballot initiatives are turning out to be a pretty powerful tool to expand Obamacare in places where it isn't as popular. 
I think one thing you're seeing here, there's an old line about American politics that Americans are operationally liberal and philosophically conservative, that if you ask them, you know, should the government be small? They say yes. And then you ask them, like, should we expand Medicaid? They say yes. Right. There's this idea that there's a, a tension between what Americans believe about government and, and what they want government to do. But something I think you're really seeing in these election results and particularly in these ballot initiatives is that there are a lot of states where uh, folks are tribally Republican but certainly on a lot of safety net issues, um, operationally liberal. I mean, think about the electorates that came out in Utah, in Idaho, in Nebraska. Like these were not electorates that were coming out because, you know, there was a, a Democratic candidate, you know, running a really fiery campaign. I mean, Mitt Romney won, I don't know, like 70 some percent of the vote in Utah, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet they came out and and that electorate, that pro-Romney electorate, was the one that voted for Medicaid. You know, the Idaho electorate was the one that voted for Medicaid. And it's a pretty impressive record here. You, when you're able to separate out some of these ideas from their association with the Democratic Party or with Democratic politicians or with parts of the Democratic Party that, that people don't like, they're very, very, very strong. Now, I don't know that Democratic politicians can do that. And to some degree, the true attack on any politician is that uh, if you're a House Democrat, you're going to vote for a Democrat as speaker and vice versa if you're a Republican. But the degree to which, you know, if you are able to disaggregate them, you can get very, very, very different outcomes, I think is interesting. I mean, to some degree, I guess Donald Trump did this himself when he ran for president as a Republican, saying he would protect Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security and has obviously tried to gut Medicaid in, in every way he can. But he like was very effective in that because he was getting at a real seam of disagreement inside the Republican Party. Like since becoming uh, president, he has tried to close that seam back up and become more Ryan-esque. But um, but these ballot initiatives that are like pointing right into that space of tension are, are really succeeding. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting polls I saw around this was um, in Idaho from Boise State University, where they asked people in the same poll. They pulled on Obamacare's popularity and they pulled on the ballot initiative. I think Obamacare, you know, not surprisingly in Idaho, got like a 35 percent approval rating. The ballot initiative in that poll got like a 70 percent approval rating. So there's just like this huge gap that is developing between philosophical opposition to the Affordable Care Act and like people just being like, yeah, maybe we should give low-income people in our state health insurance from the government. Um, And it's a huge – I think we're definitely going to see more ballots in this space in 2020. I worry a little bit about this trend. I mean I feel like – Democrats have won a lot of Medicaid expansion and minimum wage hike ballot initiatives. And I feel like that's like makes life too easy for Republicans and that they should consider insisting that if you want to enact Democratic Party economic policies, you need to elect Democrats to win. That like I think this like I don't know, like I feel I feel very uncomfortable with this idea that like we make the choice in elections just about people's like hazy views on race and various culture war stuff and then like fight it out on ballot initiatives and like nobody has to pay the price for electing a political party that doesn't have their material interests at heart. Like it seems a little, you know, like in Utah, like fair enough, right? It's not like Democrats were, were closely targeting that anyway. But like in Maine, I feel like Democrats got lucky in that Paula Page chose to be such a jerk about this Medicaid expansion. And they got to eventually like do this the right way and beat them in an election. Yeah, I'm I'm uncomfortable with that. I, I think that, you know, 
to a first approximation, a lot of the people end up suffering in that context are not the people who are making the choice that you're concerned about. Like most people in any state are not going to be on Medicaid expansion. You're talking about a very small proportion of the population. And the population voting for Republicans tends to be richer and older and whiter. And so a, a world in which you're trying to heighten the contradictions by keeping healthcare away from well, I'm not that saying heighten the contradictions. Needed. I'm saying like spend my money on winning like elections instead well, of Anyway, that's my view on it. Yeah. I um know. let me let's talk about Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. If you logged on to Twitter today for your sins. <laughs> Donald Trump's had a great victory, he says. You might have seen Trump tweet In all fairness, Nancy Pelosi deserves to be chosen Speaker of the House by the Democrats. If they give her a hard time, perhaps we will add some Republican votes. She has earned this great honor. And you might think, wow, that is such a gracious tweet from Donald Trump. Like, that is such an unusual thing. But if you you see what he's doing here, it's like a little bit of like an attempted rat fuck. Uh, There's going to be a challenge, uh, at at the very least from Representative Tim Ryan, uh, maybe from others, against Nancy Pelosi as Speaker for Democrats. There's a lot of dissension with her speakership. A lot of people feel it's time for a new generation of, of leadership. But Donald Trump wants Nancy Pelosi to be his foil. Like, that is what he is saying. He thinks it will be great if Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House. He wants everybody to know he thinks it will be great. He wants Republicans to make sure she's Speaker of the House because Donald Trump has never liked this thing where he's got to govern the country and probably not govern it legislatively and sign and work with Paul Ryan and sign bills that Paul Ryan is crafting that he doesn't really understand. What he wants to do is be in a fight with a female Democratic politician again. Like, that's what he likes doing in the campaign. It's what he would like to do now. He would like it to be Nancy Pelosi because she is unpopular. And I, I think it foretells like what's what we're about to see, which is, you know, the Democratic resistance is about to have an offensive capability. It, it will have the House. It can launch investigations. It can write and pass legislation, not get it signed into law, but, but pass it through the House so people have to deal with it and, and talk about it. And At the same time, Donald Trump is going to have something he has not had, which is a real opposition. He's tried to make the media's opposition, but the media doesn't really quite play along. So he's going to have Pelosi uh, and he's going to have because she is going to win the speakership um, most likely. And he's going to have House Democrats and he's going to try to bait them into overreach and try to get them to try to impeach him. And we're going to be in some ways in a political equilibrium that he is more comfortable with, which is like a, a constant state of high stakes conflict. And. He is clearly chomping at the bit for it. So, of course, is Pelosi. But how everybody runs their strategies in this, given that this is not going to be a period like after, say, 2010, when, you know, Barack Obama and John Boehner decided to try to do a grand bargain for a couple of years. Like this is going to be a period of of real collision in which, like, Donald Trump tries to make Pelosi and his like equal but opposite foil that he can use to mobilize his base to win in 2020. Um, and he is he is showing that strategy. He's like gleefully showing off that strategy like right now, like instantly. Well, and I think the other thing is it does. It kind of like takes policy off his plate in a way that seems to be something that he would prefer. Like when I think back to the healthcare debate, like there were all these interviews that showed that the president really just had no interest in like understanding the details of policy. The policy bills were generally super unpopular. So it, it almost felt like policy was a, not almost, it did feel like policy was a drag for the president that they kept putting out these bills. He wasn't really taking the time to learn about them. The bills would pull super poorly. That kind of era seems to end a little bit um, in and switch to kind of more of this adversarial relationship with with Nancy Pelosi instead of this, you know, 
relationship where they're like trying to work together to pass tax bills and health care bills. None of it's really well, I guess some of it is moving with the tax care bill, the healthcare stuff isn't. All of it's pretty unpopular. Like that policy sphere kind of feels like it gets taken off the table a little bit for the next two years in a way that kind of puts Trump more in his comfort zone with the things he'd rather be talking about. And, you know, I don't think Democrats should let Trump get into their head about this Pelosi thing, right? But Democrats should take seriously the communications challenge, right? That if there is going to be – politics is going to be characterized by fights between Donald Trump and House Democrats, right? Donald Trump is just a big communications personality, right? And the way Democrats waged the midterms was largely by trying to duck that personality and like run their races, you know, which was smart. It worked well for them in the House. Uh, It did not work that well for them in the Senate. But the opposite strategy of nationalizing in the Senate would have been much, much, much worse. But I don't think you want to take – two years, which is just like Donald Trump slagging in a one-sided way against Nancy Pelosi. And it's also the case that Nancy Pelosi is not a – she is like – if you ask Nancy Pelosi's allies to start saying great things about Nancy Pelosi, they'll say that she is a legislative tactician, that she is a fundraiser, that she's an organizer. She's not like an amazing get-up-in-front-of-the-cameras stump speech person who everybody wants to headline at their huge rally. Right. And Democrats need to think about like who are they going to deploy like quasi officially to like be a Democrat who a lot of people see in electronic broadcast media? Because if it's just Donald Trump and his like caricature of Nancy Pelosi, like that's not good for them. And there's like these formal posts in the leadership structure that they're going to have to fill out with Joe Crowley gone and and some other openings. But I think the real question is like who does that functional role? Like who are they constantly saying should be on the Sunday shows? Who is going to be the person who tweets aggressively about whatever it is we're yelling about today? You know, Because I don't think that's Nancy Pelosi's comfort zone, but somebody needs to do it. Let me make the case for Nancy Pelosi here for a second because because I read the situation a little bit differently. The Democrats who are going to be the national spokespeople for the party, who are going to be on the Sunday shows, who are going to be the foils, are going to be the 2020 field. It's going to be Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and, you know, Joe Biden and, and all these people. Like, even if you did replace Nancy Pelosi with Tim Ryan, it's just not going to be Tim Ryan, right? It's going to be like we are quickly going to move into 2020 land um, for, for better and for worse. What I do think is going to be happening, though, is that the House is going to structure to some degree the context in which that campaign is going on. It's like, what are those people being asked to comment on? What is the media covering? What are those Sunday show discussions about? We'll see if Nancy Pelosi still has this. But what Nancy Pelosi has had traditionally is an extraordinary amount of legislative control and discipline within her own caucus in a way that Boehner and Ryan just never did. And so I I think a lot of people believe, and I think this is probably correct, that one of the real dangers here is democratic overreach, that what Donald Trump is going to try to do is bait them into overreach. 
And Pelosi, again, if she still has the kind of pull and skill in her caucus that she did in the past, and the dissension to her, I think, does throw that into question. But if she still has it, I think she's potentially a quite good leader to hold Democrats to a pretty disciplined strategy, like some investigations, but not like every investigation all at once so no messages break through, like trying to get Trump to bring out his tax returns, but not jumping immediately into like a completely doomed effort at impeachment, you know, sort of on and on and on down the line. And, you know, I think the most important thing for House Democrats right now is they have a disciplined strategy. Meanwhile, that will give uh, a context in which like 2020 Democrats can run their own somewhat disciplined strategies as opposed to like endlessly commenting on, you know, some kind of collision that they actually don't want. So, again, I can't say for sure that Pelosi still has this power, but if you were going, like, of the people who could possibly be Speaker of the House for Democrats who might be able to hold Democrats to a pretty disciplined line, she's, I think, the the, the best bet on it. Give it a year. Like, nobody's going to be thinking uh, that the Democratic spokesperson is the Speaker of the House. A Democratic spokesperson is going to be the one to three people likeliest to be the Democratic nominee. See, I kind of feel like the imminence of the Democratic presidential primary, like, raises the stakes to have somebody who, you know, is for the next 12 months, say, focused on what is the Democratic Party's, like, national message in the media. Because most likely, if what you're trying to do is beat 17 million people in a presidential primary, what you are going to be talking about is like not what is optimally designed to counter Donald Trump. I mean, I I agree with you that like eventually it becomes a presidential campaign. But like it's critical, I think, for Democrats to not be like sitting ducks for the next three to six months, just like constantly taking on water as Donald Trump like relentlessly assaults them and they try to like figure out their own stuff. Like they need to get organized and fight back quickly, I think. Speaking of getting organized and fighting back, you want to talk about legislative chambers and like the sort of state balances of power? Because those are really important, but don't get as much uh, national attention. Yes. Um, Democrats... One sort of trifecta is like three-chamber control in Maine, in New York, in Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, and Illinois. They also won uh, both houses of the state legislature in New Hampshire um, and then governorships in Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and Kansas, I believe. In Maine. Oh, yes, and and Maine sets out the list. They also won some down ballot. They won uh, attorney general in Nevada, in Wisconsin, in Michigan. Um, They're going to have a chance to flip the secretary of state in New Hampshire because of how the um, control of that works out. So it's a a fairly substantial change. And uh, it means most governors will be Republicans, but most people will live in Democratic states. Uh, Democrats are going to have a much stronger voice in the 2020 districting map um, and will, of course, also have the chance to make policy. It sounds ridiculous, but Democrats have not had control of the New York State Senate like at all in the modern era. And this means in particular, that's a big state that a lot of people live in that I think a a lot of ambitious policymaking can happen. Yeah, I think these are kind of like I spend a decent amount of time looking at state legislatures and they're often a testing ground for a lot of the policy ideas that end up bubbling up into Congress and Washington. And 
Democrats have often, I think, really struggled in this space. They, I don't think they've invested as much in kind of recruiting folks to run these. And so I think it is significant that you're seeing Democrats take, you know, the entire state control in a handful of states. Um, and I think this also matters kind of when you think of it about a pipeline issue, where I think one of the places that Democrats have struggled is that if you don't have a lot of people in state legislatures running for those local races, then it gets harder to like find the right person to run for an open congressional seat to kind of start taking on those national races. Um, I'm particularly interested in kind of what happens in Nevada. They've kind of been like a place that is not thought of as a liberal, uh, you know, stronghold, but often it's kind of, they actually have like a lot of really interesting liberal policy stuff going on there. Like the thing that a few healthcare nerds were kind of like geeking out over this morning is that this could mean the return of um, something we've talked about here on the weeds of sprinkle care. This Medicaid buy-in that Nevada tried to pass a few years ago got vetoed by the then Republican governor. It seems like New Mexico and Nevada are going to be in a bit of a race to see who can do a Medicaid buy-in first. And like, that only happens because of the change in the composition of state-level government. Well, just one other, I thought, really interesting stat from all this. There was a tweet from, from Liz Benjamin saying, the only state left with a divided legislature in the nation now is Minnesota. The remaining huh. 49 state legislatures are all single-party controlled. Um, of them, Democrats control 18, while Republicans control 31, which says a little bit about the the Republican lean of, of states compared to the nation as well. But that's just an amazing stat about, you know, like how much states are now kind of lining up in, in, in one direction or another. And a bunch of those do have uh, Republican legislatures will now face a, a Democratic governor. Um, and that's important for gerrymandering because uh, you're going to have the census in 2020. And, you know, you, if you and particularly also if Democrats get gains again in two years, having those states, even with mixed government, means Republicans can't just gerrymander their way to unbelievable, like impregnable um, house fortresses. But it's a pretty interesting dynamic. Um, I, I'm really surprised by that number that 49 state legislatures are now single party control. That's that's unusual. I think that oversells the amount of unity, though, because you're still dealing with governors. Like, totally. I think, totally. Yeah, you have a number where the state legislature and governor are split. You know, what will be interesting to see how much Democrats press their advantage in some of these states, right? So like one small example is that like New York state has like notoriously regressive voting practices, right? Which have historically been enacted because it's a kind of machiney type state in which the Democrats feel very self-confident in their ability to win statewide elections. So they don't worry about the fact that all these barriers to participation tend to help Republicans because it also just helps incumbents kind of stay reelected. But that winds up helping House Republicans sort of down the ballot, right? And this whole topic has been the subject of ferocious discussion over the past couple of years. And, you know, if you see New York go to automatic voter registration, to opening up early voting, things like that, that's going to wind up making life much harder down the road for Peter King and other sort of House Republican incumbents out there. On the other hand, New York has avoided sort of taking a try at some of these raising taxes on the middle class type stuff that tend to blow up Democratic majorities uh, like the, what happened in, in Vermont and, and elsewhere. And if they feel pressure to, to do that, to like overreach, you know, it could go 
in the other direction in that regard. Oregon now has developed a, a really big Democratic majorities in, in the legislature um, and Kate Brown got reelected and I think you could see them – you know, moving forward in some kind of big new ways as like the state that has the most degrees of freedom on this kind of move. Washington, as we've talked about before, somewhat oddly has like no income tax and all these billionaires living in it. Um, and they say they're they're not going to touch that. They've like promised that, you know, eight ways to Sunday. But their effort to address climate change through a ballot initiative failed. That's sort of supposed to be Jay Inslee's signature issue, it seems like he should probably try to come up with some signature accomplishments on his signature issue. You know, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see like Nevada and New Mexico, I think, like have a, a pretty clear roadmap that they're going for sort of incremental health care change in states where Democrats have won relatively narrowly and have not like historically dominated. But somewhere on the coast, I think there's there's some more interesting dilemmas. All right. It's a big night. A lot happened. <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot. And we, of course, still don't know what happened in all of the elections. Uh, So we will we will get to get back. And it it is worth saying, I mean, depending on how it goes in the outstanding Senate races, it could it could be like a giant Senate sweep or a kind of narrow one, which is going to depend for for how you think about it. Um, So there will be plenty more to weeds about in the future. Uh, We will be there. Alternatively, if you want to break, you know, the impact is always telling us about exciting new things. Yeah, um, yeah. so we have a new, we have two episodes up on the Impact feed now. A new one is coming out Friday about a really cool policy experiment out in Oakland, California. So you should subscribe if you want to see why all these changes to state legislatures really matter. And speaking of Weedsy of, of Weedsy shows, I just had uh, an interview on the EK show come out two days ago with uh, Sandy Darity, who is the economist at Duke University, who's been pushing the baby bonds idea um, that now sort of Cory Booker has adopted. But but it's sort of about this idea of universal basic wealth and thinking about economics in terms of groups. I think a lot of people here will be interested. And tomorrow I've got Leon Nafok, the, the host of the great podcast Slow Burn, talking about how to think about Nixon, Bill Clinton and, and, and Donald Trump and political corruption and that's a really fun podcast that sits a little bit out of this moment at, of time. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, so uh, check us out at the Weeds Facebook group if there's more stuff you want to talk about, if you'd like to see us uh, address things later on. And thanks, of course, to our producer, Griffin Tanner. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.